Hi, everybody, and welcome to How Music Charts, the podcast where we explore the dance between interpreting data and making creative decisions in the music business every day. I'm your co-host, Rutger. I'm your co-host, Jason. This podcast is owned and operated by Chartmetric, a music data company that connects numbers to narratives to help professionals leverage the power of music. Remember, any opinions or views expressed by our guests or the co-hosts on this podcast are theirs alone and do not in any way constitute the opinions or views of any company they work for. To preserve a tone of earnest dialogue and protect our guests, we will refrain from using names of any kind, personal, company, or otherwise, unless our guests have explicitly granted us permission to do so. In this episode, we chat with Elliot Altoff, Associate Manager of Digital Strategy at Republic Records, a subsidiary of Universal Music Group. If you don't know Republic, you can be sure you know plenty of their artists. Named Label of the Year by Billboard in December, Republic's artist roster boasts releases from Ariana Grande, Drake, Giorgio Moroder, Jaden Smith, James Blake, Kid Cudi, Lil Wayne, Nicki Minaj, Pearl Jam, Fantagram, Pop Smoke, Post Malone, Taylor Swift, The Weeknd, Need We Go On? Republic has become one of the big players in the music industry today. And part of that comes down to the label's forward-thinking team, which has consistently leveraged data to stay ahead of the curve. Elliot is a relatively new addition to Republic, but throughout his career in the music industry, which has included digital marketing and digital strategy positions at both indie labels and also artist management companies, business data has played a part in some form or another. So it was a real treat to be able to speak with him, especially during such a tumultuous time. Hopefully, you gleaned some important insights from our conversation, but most importantly, we hope we're making your shelter-in-place just a bit more manageable, whether you're working from home or not. What's up, boys? How's it going? I'm excited to make this happen. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, man. We're happy to talk to you. Sorry that it has to be remote, but that's the way it goes these days. So... Explain to us how an Iowan Mizzou grad ends up in the Big Apple. Um, it's kind of where life kind of like took things, really. Like when I was graduating college, I, I never really like looked at New York like, oh, this was the like end all be all sort of place. It was kind of like, I guess I'll kind of go wherever the job takes me. But kind of with music, right? Like there's really only like three options to it. There's New York, there's LA, there's Nashville. Um, and yeah. so I was kind of just like, when I was graduating, I, I just applied to like all these different places to just like get a foot in the door. Um, and I came across Cinematic like super randomly and like reached out to them for a job, came back as an internship. Um, and I just kind of like took the opportunity. Um, I remember like, going through the process and like talking to my mom um, about like the offer that they gave me. And she was like, well, is this what you want to do? And I was like, it's exactly like what I want to do, but it is an unpaid internship. So I was like, all right, I'm going to make the leap. I'll get out to New York. It'll be a lot easier to just like take interviews while I'm out there. Plus it's a foot in the door and it's like exactly where I want to be. So I just kind of took the leap, man. And, it, and um, luckily it worked out. So along the way, you developed your love for, um, I was snooping on your website, by the way, um, your love for Chance the Rapper and music festivals. How did that come about? 
my freshman year at Mizzou, I was like just meeting people like in the dorms and stuff. And I met these two guys, Daryl and Albert, and they were both from Chicago. Um, and we all three just kind of like hit it off like really quickly. Um, they they showed me Chance like right when he was like blowing up, like right off of, uh, they showed me 10 Day. And I remember they played me Brain Cells and like showed me the music video and stuff. And I was like hooked from that point on. <laughs> um, so like, I remember going back to my dorm and like, literally just like looking up everything about chance and like that was kind of like my first like real music obsession um and just kind of like digging into just kind of like all the intricacies of like how he works and how he moves and like the stuff of him being like an independent artist and like not going to a label was such a huge like um eye-opening experience for me and it was like cool to see him do it from like the ground up um and I just kind of like stuck with it and I fell in love with like his growth. And it was cool to see him go from like nothing to like playing arenas, you know, like I remember seeing him kids these days was playing at this like super small venue in Columbia and uh, Columbia, Missouri. That's where Mizzou is, by the way. Um, <laughs> and Chance was opening for him. So I like went and I saw Chance like open for them, saw Vic Mensa before Vic Mensa was even like Vic Mensa. All the people in his band were like now all of Chance's band members, like Donnie Trumpet and and Sticks, his like drum player were all in that band too. So it was like really cool to see them like at that stage in their career. Um, and then fast forward what like five or six years now they're all playing arena shows like it was it was really cool to watch that growth and that kind of like really really hit off my obsession with it all <laughs> if that makes sense and that kind of gives you an interesting perspective right because you've both managed indie artists and you also work at a major label now exactly yeah so it's like a weird it's a weird balance of like, I get what he's saying about like the label side of things and like where he's coming from of like, anyone can do this without a label. Like, yes, that's definitely possible. And like that, that like definitely opened my eyes up to the possibilities of like managing artists without a label and like still being able to like do it and like put your best foot forward and be creative within the space. So, um, that was definitely like an eye-opening thing, but then also like working for the label side, you also see the importance of a label and like where those pieces get like brought to the table, um, right. especially on the DSP side. So, um, but when it comes to like marketing and like digital marketing, right? Like everyone, especially millennials, like our age, right? Like we all know how to use the internet. It's just about being creative and like figuring out the best way to use those resources. So. That kind of feeds into this, the way you describe yourself as the perfect combination of left and right brained. Yeah. How has that helped you get where you are in the music industry? I mean, I think it's super important as like a digital marketer, right? To one, um, think outside the box and, and kind of like push the boundaries and like think, think of like different ways to kind of like push the narrative um, and like push the industry forward, right? Like 
Um, I think all of those things are super important, but then also you got to like think back to the like X's and O's of it all, of just like the data and like where, where you're pulling this information and what you can use it to like leverage into. Um, so I think it's like super important as a digital marketer to have both of those like aspects of yourself to fully be creative, but also like following the lines of like, this is what we do with this data and like, here's how we leverage it into bigger opportunities or growing the audience more and, and stuff like that. So that's kind of the importance of it, if that makes sense. So our chief commercial officer, Chaz Jenkins, he has this thing where he's like, you know, before today, <clears throat> you know, where the data was like very explicit, like in, you know, CSV spreadsheets and stuff like that, you know, and, and A&Rs or whoever else in the recognition was just going off gut. Gut was really, even then, really just a bunch of data, whether yeah. it be, you know, some ticket sales history of a certain artist or exactly you know, how loud the screams were from, you know, a certain show or, you know, all these things, um, they were just never in the format or the the type that they are now. Yeah, no, that's, that's super interesting. And like, um, I think especially like at my last job at Mom and Pop, like it was interesting to see how much nowadays data goes into those like research things from the A&R perspective. Um, like the A&R team at Mom and Pop uses chart metrics all the time. Like it's, uh, everything is now leaning so heavily into like, how big is your audience? Like how many monthly followers do you have? Like how many streams do you have? You know what I mean? So it's like, it is crazy to see how the, like the demand of data has like changed the way that A&R looks at recruiting people. And it's not just about like sound anymore. It's like about like a look and like your poll and like your audience and stuff like that. So it's crazy to see like the difference of it, you know? It would have been interesting to like see it back in the day of like how A&Rs used to do it compared to like now. Um, but like in the space that I've been working in over the past like three or four years has been like all pretty like data driven, so. Are you able to use that data pretty creatively i know you like say that um creative data use is something that you excel at so how can you explain that a little bit yeah so actually one really cool example of this was like right when i got to mom and pop we were diving into like the courtney barnett campaign um the like tell me how you really feel campaign um and that was probably one of the coolest uses of like data and I guess like email captures um that was like super interesting she she basically started out her campaign with like um just kind of like a splash page on her website that was just like tell me how you really feel and it was basically just like uh it was basically just like a text block of where it was like you put your name your email where you're from and like then it said like tell me how you really feel and like some people would be like I feel sad today or like I feel happy or something like that. But then some people would go like super in depth, like and write like paragraphs. Yeah, so it was kind of cool like kicking that off um, because like then afterwards we like took all of, um, we like took all of that data and like all of those, um, we took all of those emails and we took all of the um, responses and stuff and kind of built our campaign um, around those responses. One thing we did was we took those responses and we built out like billboards in New York and I think Nashville and LA. 
Um, and I think some in the UK and Australia too, if I'm not mistaken. But basically we like took those and um, made a couple of different creative, uh, creative billboards out of it. Like one of them was just like, basically all of the like responses, like just like listed out and like, just like lines and stuff. So you could like go up to it and you could like read individual like people's like responses and like, uh, and then there was like another billboard creative where it was like, we took like five or six of those um, responses and we like took these billboards and we we put like five five different slots on it and it was like like tell me how you really feel um by like choosing your answer with like your gum so like people would like walk by and they would like take their gum and they would like stick it to the billboard <laughs> and it was really cool because we actually got like a shit ton of responses for it like i remember sending an intern out to go take pictures of it and it was like splattered with like gum and I was like dude that's crazy um and then eventually we turned that into like a release party thing where we took like all of that info and um we created like floor to ceiling um I guess you could call them like banners of like um it was like all of the phrases like every single phrase that we had so it like lined the entire walls of like this space um, and then there was like three cell phones in the middle or not cell phones. They were like landline phones where you'd like pick it up. Um, and we had Courtney like record herself, like taught, like repeating these, like, tell me how you really feel sentences and stuff. So it was like, wow. you could pick it up and it would be like different things ringing and like different, different like stories and stuff. Um, everything that we built asset wise, um, came from that data so that was just a cool way of like taking that and just running with it <laughs> you know and then is it hard i mean is it hard to kind of like measure or budget you know for like the next like marketing campaign that's super creative like how much you're willing to put into it and then you know how much you know lift you're getting from you know new audience yeah i mean that that is difficult and i think it was just kind of like a cool case study of like what we can do within that space right of like yeah. literally letting fans drive the creative and the marketing around around a release you know i haven't done anything that in depth since then um like that but it's like it's just a cool concept of like what you can do in the digital space with like fans and like I mean right now is a, a perfect time of like artist fan engagement right like we're we're figuring out different ways to like connect artists to the fans like directly so like a cool example um and this will probably come out after this is already out, but I'm just going to drop it here anyway. Um, for one of my new artists at Republic, we're doing this like um, fan lyric video where we're just like, we're reaching out to their top fans um, and having them basically record themselves singing along to the song. And we're going to splice it into like a, a lyric video. Um, so like, that's a, another cool way of just like using your data and like your numbers to like, like find those people and like really target those top fans who are like super pumped about like this score, like reaching out to them and being like, Hey, we want you in our music video, like cool right. stuff like that. Um, but yeah, that, I think everyone's always trying to 
figure out how to get closer to their fans. Yeah, and using the data is like such a key way of doing that. What differences are there in your approach at a label versus like when you're managing indie bands? I mean, at a label, right, you have like way more resources to lean on. So it's like, it's it's interesting because I'm like right in that process, right, of like learning a major label system versus like an indie system. And then also like seeing it from the management perspective of like, it's just like all different levels, right? Like on the management side, um, it's still a lot of like cold emailing and kind of just like building out your own plan until someone like takes notice of it. Um, right. And just like continuing to push that agenda and like push the narrative and like build the story with the artists. Um, and then those things like start to fall in place, you know? Um, but like from a, from like a label perspective, right? Like, uh, like an emerging artist could come in and they could have like, I don't know, like no fault. Actually, this is a good example. Beach Bunny. Um, I worked that Beach Bunny campaign at Mom and Pop. Um, and like they came into, they came into Mom and Pop with Dream or with Prom Queen, just like exploding on Spotify and TikTok. Like TikTok, it went viral on TikTok, exploded over into Spotify. And then the track had like over like 20 million streams or something on it. And then we signed them. Um, but when we signed them, it was super interesting to look at like their data and stuff because like their Instagram following was like, was like over 50 K their like Spotify numbers were really great. Um, but then like their other socials were kind of just like non-existent. Um, so kind of like diving into it, right? Like I went into like their Spotify backend and I looked at uh, their playlists and like they were on two editorial playlists, like, and not even like big ones. They were just like mood playlists. Um, and then like they had that track that was over 20 million streams. So we like went to Spotify and we were like, hey, <laughs> you guys should probably like pay attention to this, like, and pay attention to this artist. Um, so it's kind of like whenever, um, whenever like a emerging artist comes onto like a label like that, and like they already have like some sort of thing that like reacted, um, the label can take that and like leverage it with their like partners to leverage bigger things out of it. So like when we went into the campaign with Beach Bunny, um, had two editorial playlists across every single DSP. And then by the end of their album campaign, they were across, I think it was 19 editorial playlists across DSPs and a playlist cover on every single DSP um, wow. on release day. So it's like, it's crazy to see like the difference of like, once you put a band in that structure and you like have things to like leverage to partners and stuff like that, you can really make the most of that opportunity. And like with Beach Bunny, data was like our huge driver. Like we just shot Spotify and Apple just like constantly, just like data of like how things were reacting, um, like how fans were listening, like what the skip rate was on these tracks, on these playlists and, and stuff like that. So it's interesting to see it from both sides. I guess in a way it's comforting because it's not just algorithmic based but at the same time it's like you need these 
relationships and this these resources to exactly leverage that initial success exactly and like you'll see some artists who are like independent who i don't know like get a manager who's like has connections with like certain people at spotify and apple and like they'll be able to do it like reach out to them and like land on some playlists and stuff and like get some things kind of moving within that space and then other people start to pay attention to it and like that's when you kind of like get your shot at like an indie label or like a like a major or something and like the the thing that's hard about my end like um like I manage this band brother Moses have relationships from like a work side of things of where it's like these are my reps like specifically for mom and pop and like specifically for Republic. Right. And like, I can't go and like leverage those relationships to like leverage mom and pop or to leverage brother Moses. Cause they would just be like, yeah, that we don't, we don't do that. You know? So it's like, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's weird. It's like a hard balance of like, I have these relationships and I know these people, but I can't leverage it outside of work, you know? So how do you find, um, in terms of like making or working on different artist strategies, um, how does it differ if at all, uh, between genres? Ooh, um, this one's interesting. I actually just had a call with this new band that I'm working with at Republic called Hero the Band. Um, and they kind of sit like in this weird space of like, um, they're like four brothers from Atlanta and they're like friends with like earth gang and like jid and like cole and like all these like hip-hop artists but they're a rock band so it's like such a weird like um like differentiate like to differentiate the two you know what i mean like and they actually asked me because um like on our call they asked me the like basically that same question they were like so what do you like what do you see the biggest differences between like working a hip hop artist and working like an indie artist. And I was like, well, I think from the hip hop side of things, like I think it's a little more sporadic and it's kind of um, going with the moments and kind of seeing like what sticks and what doesn't stick. Um, and then from like the indie side, it's more of like a calculated effort of where it's like, you're trying to like, you're trying to like build your narrative and like build your story around your, your artists. And like, um, I think you take more calculated approaches to it of like, this is our social schedule and this is what we're going to make ourselves look like. And like, this is where, or this is like our branding and stuff like that. So I think it's a little more calculated from that perspective. Right. Um, but on the hip hop side of things, I think it's more like, um, yeah, I think it's more along the lines of like going with the wave and like you'll see things that like will pop up that are just like trends or like even just like TikTok dances and shit like that, you know? It's like going with those viral moments and like trying to make that viral moment for yourself and and like once you hit that viral moment, then it's like it's easy. Like <laughs> then you start to play that game of like, okay, here's my here's my like long-term plan and here's my building and like, here's my creative. Um, but it's different. It's definitely different across each genre for sure. And like every plan you make, it's going to be different for each artist. Like no artist audience is like an exact replica of each other. So it's like, you have to figure out um, 
how best to like tap into each of those markets. Um, so I, I'm learning a lot of that right now, like in this new role too of like, okay, I see one thing working for this artist, but that might not be the best thing for this other artist. So like, how can we kind of do the same thing, but like tailor it to that audience? Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you when I was looking over uh, kind of your, your background, Elliot, was what are your thoughts on kind of the relationship between labels and, and streaming platforms? You touched on it a little bit earlier. Yeah. Um, but just, you know, from a more general perspective, how do you feel like in your experiences, you know, that kind of there's, there's a common interest there, obviously. Um, but at the same time, there's, there's a lot of like, you know, kind of push and pull a little bit because there are other people kind of vying for someone's attention. And you yeah. know, how do you, how do you kind of personally navigate those kind of like dynamics and those relationships that you've kind of built over, over time? Dude, it's, it's hard <laughs> to say, to say the least, right? Like, um, I mean, I think from the DSP perspective, right? Like everyone wants their platform to be the biggest platform and they want everything to be driving to their platform. So it's kind of this like crazy game of like making sure you're keeping everyone happy. <laughs> like sometimes it doesn't work um, and it can get kind of messy. But I mean, I think... I think one of the biggest things throughout like a campaign, right, is just like making sure that you're touching on each platform and driving to each platform like equally and like having an equal voice across like every single DSP. And that kind of keeps everyone happy. You know what I mean? Like, so it's it's that weird balance of, of making sure that you touch every single platform. And yeah, and it's, a, it's more interesting from like a major perspective too, rather than like at mom and pop, like, then at like a major you're like here I'll toss you this Drake single and like also like make sure you like put this person on here too you know what I mean so I think there's a little more leverage when it comes to a major um yeah. rather than like an indie um but yeah that, that's kind of my perspective on it so to to get away from streaming for a little bit um I see you're rocking of course the the chance hat merchandise yeah um, we've worked with that a bunch right in some yeah. of your positions so like, how do you kind of view merchandise nowadays? Um, you know, I feel like a lot, a good percentage of the news we read about and, you know, a lot of the big kind of industry outlets are about streaming numbers and followers and that kind of thing. But I feel like merchandise doesn't quite get as much uh, talk, even though it could be a really huge revenue stream for a lot of artists. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of your experiences and kind of kind of lessons learned you've, you've seen for different artists and different genres and that kind of thing? Definitely. Um... Yeah, I mean, I th I think now more than ever, like D2C stores are are um, a huge component of every single artist like rollout, right? Um, direct to consumer, so like the artists like web store. Um, at mom and pop, I I basically was the one like building all of those out and like working with the artists to kind of like figure out what they wanted their bundles to be and stuff. Um, but I mean, there has been a lot of changes to it recently. Um, I'm sure you guys are aware of that, like DJ Khaled stuff that happened that basically changed the whole billboard rules. Like the bundling controversy? Yeah, the bundling yeah. stuff where he like bundled energy drinks with his album. Like, oh yeah, like that kind of like changed a lot of the rules around it. But um, I think it's still like super important for an artist, um, especially when it comes to like charting and stuff. Um, like I'm seeing it right now 
from the Republic side of things with like the weekend. Like he just went um, three weeks in a row at number one <clears throat> on the top 200 because that was, uh, and that was all due to his like D2C store. Um, so he, throughout his campaign, like I think leading into the release of that album, he set up his pre-order on his website and like had like a bunch of vinyl and like a bunch of bundles with like everything. And then he did like cool collabs with like Bape and like Supreme and like all these like different streetwear brands. And he like staggered out the releases throughout like these past three weeks. Wow. And like when he does that, it just keeps driving back to his store and like people just yeah. like keep going back to like buy the album on vinyl or like an exclusive color vinyl or like um this like crazy collab between the weekend and bape like you know what i mean so uh i think more and more artists are like starting to figure out that like you can get really like nitty-gritty and like creative with it um and like start to bundle your like album with just like different creative revenues or like different types of merchandise so um uh, i think it's like super important for every artist um no matter the genre you know i imagine for a lot of maybe indie artists too i'm, I'm sure you have a really good pulse on kind of the do-it-yourself scene yeah they're just doing their own merch and they've got boxes of inventory in their in their living room yeah well and even from like the management perspective right like with Brother Moses, we just released an album back in March um, and kind of really shitty timing with the whole COVID stuff. Like that that week we were like launching our D2C store um, and like we first started it out with the, we wanted to push the vinyl sales like really bad because that's kind of where most of the revenue comes in from. Um, so we just found different ways to like bundle the record with like different merch items. So like one week we did the like um we did a tote bag and a vinyl um and it was just like a tote bundle and then the following week we did a bodega boys bundle where it was like a t-shirt uh vinyl and a tote bag uh, and then we're gonna like follow it up like later kind of once this all settles down with like a which is like an overall like discography vinyl bundle of where it's like every single record bundled into one for like a discounted price um so it's just about like trying to find ways to like push your fans back to the dc store and like hopefully mm -hmm. hopefully keep going back and like clicking and and purchasing you know so um finding cool and creative ways to just like drive back to the store is always super important and that's like that's something we lean into a lot um at Republic too, um, that I'm like starting to notice is like finding different ways to push your store. Um, like great example is like the weekend had this like Snapchat lens, um, just like it, it had been like launched like right when the album came out. And um, if you like clicked on it, it like took you to his like official page. And then it was like the top button was a shop button and like, I think by like doing that, they came back and said that he raised like over $150,000 or something just from like that Spotify or that, that Snapchat button alone. So it's just wow. like, it's just figuring out like different ways in your, in your campaign to like 
keep pushing it like just put it in their face you know yeah just to zoom out a little bit um our data scientists did a study on chart performance uh based on indie label versus major label and one of the things they found is that it's getting harder to determine the distinction between the two do you think the lines are getting a bit more fuzzy these days uh definitely yeah um yeah i think it's i think i think nowadays right it, it kind of goes back to our conversation of like chance the rapper of like you see artists who can literally go and just like run without a label for like a really long time that it kind of like it shows that you don't need the major label system behind you to like be a superstar like cautious clay is another good example um but like yeah I, I i don't think there's like that divide anymore of like if you're on a major label like you could you could totally be like a like on an indie label and, and be on the same level as like a taylor swift or someone of that stature you know so i think the lines are definitely blurred um and i think that's just due to the like the like openness of the industry now of where it's like anyone can access these sort of tools um but it's just about like how you leverage those tools um and like spotify is doing a cool thing too of where they're like opening up that like pitch tool of like to anyone so it's like you if you're even like someone with like 50 monthly listeners you can still pitch your music over it's not going to get picked up but like they're still making those things like open to people like that so I think by opening the floodgates like that, you're like allowing those indie labels to not be shut out or like put in the shadow behind a major. So like looking into the future, do you have any predictions or insight as to how things will progress? Like will the major labels still control most of everything? Or do you think that indies are going to continue to increase their market share as the lines become fuzzier and fuzzier yeah i you know that's that's a good question i really have no clue like i could i could definitely see the the major still being like a huge factor in it but i think more and more you're gonna see these like kids just like pop up from the internet and like do do this sort of things like chance and cautious and and all of these people and just like and just like run with it you know um so I think that's going to like, by, by seeing that you'll probably see like an explosion of it. And then you'll, you'll see like the DSPs and like music services, try to like catch up to that and like figure out how to adapt to that. Um, so you might see like certain like indie labels fade away because like they might not be needed anymore, but I don't know. That's like super hard to like, to see, but it's like, you can already see the like, shift of like I mean like 10 years ago there was only major labels you know and then like you had those indie labels like fighting to like even be seen and now it's like you see those like people like Sub Pop and Mom and Pop and and like I don't know other indie labels like not be like overshadowed by those people because like DSPs have opened it up to like make it easier for people of that stature to like get recognized so right. 
I could see it shifting to that point of like anyone can do it um, and you don't need a label, but I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's a good question. All right. So we're going to try something new. We haven't tried this before. Um, just like a data-driven music trivia. Ew. Um, trivia. <laughs> you know it. It's like intentionally impossible. You kind of have to use your deduction skills to see, you know. All right. If you yeah. can make yes, basically. All right. Here's the first one. Who had a bigger Instagram follower count on November 12th, 2019? Taylor Swift or Ariana Grande? And what was the count? Oh, what was the count? <laughs> Come on, man. Yeah, that second one's a little below the belt. <laughs> Wait, give me the date again. November 12th, 2019. So about, so about half a year ago. Uh, uh, that's tough because they were both in the middle of those campaigns, right? Which campaigns? Tell us about it. Sweetener <laughs> and Lover? Is that the Taylor Swift album? Uh, yeah, I think, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I don't listen to either, but <laughs> um, uh, I'm going to go with Ariana because of the, the um, Thank You Next um, music video and virality of that track. And I have to go, I have to guess like a number. Yeah. Like. I don't know, like 50 million or something? Try 166.8 million. Oh, whoa. Let's, let's give him, a, let's give him a, a congratulations on getting at least Ariana right. Yeah. <laughs> and yes, that is my water bottle uh, up to my mic. Yeah. <laughs> we have to think about a, a victory, a uh, uh, happy dance party. But, uh, <laughs> um, okay, and then his bonus, bonus for this one. Um, so Ariana surpassed Taylor at some point. Right. Um, uh, let's make this easy. So, was it in 2019, 2018, or 2017? 2018. Mm. 20, why? Because she had that other album. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> you are one year too late. It's actually March uh, 2017, uh, March 1st. Um, looks like Ariana had 98.4, and then uh, she surpassed Taylor Swift with 98.2 on that day. Yeah. Crazy yeah, numbers. But I was close though. Crazy numbers either way. They're, they're both doing all right. So, you know. <laughs> you said these were impossible. I already got one. So. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Next one. Uh, who had more Spotify monthly listeners a year ago from today? Okay. So, this is April 2019. The weekend or Post Malone? Oh, Post Malone. <laughs> well done. Okay. And then in the same one, any idea what, what the count was? Oh, man. Probably something dumb, stupid, like 15 million or something. 48, actually. <laughs> 48 yeah. million monthly listeners? Yeah. <laughs> That's insane. Was he the number one on Spotify at that point? He probably was. Cause what, that's when the, wait, when did the Hollywood album come out? That was 2018, I think. It was 2018? Oh, okay. Oh, my bad. I don't know. That. He's always on rotation anyway, so. All right, <laughs> next one. Who's on more Apple Music playlists? Jeremy Zucker or Black Atlas? You guys are just rattling off for public artists. <laughs> um, Jeremy Zucker, probably. Because Black Atlas. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> yeah, because um, uh, Black Atlas is, like, pretty brand new. They, like, just released their debut. Good, good. Um, You're doing well so far. Hell yeah. yeah. How yeah, many good. playlists? Seven. 111. 
What the? <laughs> <laughs> that's probably wait, that's probably including all the different territories, probably Rucker. Oh, uh, it, it could be. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, fair. All right. <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, next one. Okay, who had more Deezer fans on Ooh. June in June 2019? Ben Howard or James Blake? James Blake. <laughs> Deezer, I see you, brother. <laughs> ben Howard had 456,000. James Blake had 175,000 fans on Deezer. Yeah. It surprised me, too, actually. All right. Um, who had more Wikipedia views? Uh, <laughs> In Oct- Oct- on October 9th, 2019, Pearl Jam or Giorgio Moroder? I feel like this is a trick one. I'm going to go Giorgio. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> of course it's Pearl Jam, dude. How many, uh, how many views? 69,000. <laughs> Actually, only 3.3,000. This is on that particular day, right? Not like total. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. uh, I got you. I got you. Cool. Sweet. That's it. That's a speed run. I think you 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 win. You win. Yeah, you win. Nice job. <laughs> That's what's up. That's what's up. Those are impossible questions. We're not trying to put you too much on the spot. <laughs> I like that. That was so, those are some good uh, some good ones. I I applaud your I applaud your data search right there. Yeah. <laughs> you can take that and just grill people in the hallway when you get back to the office. Just, yeah. just start, start grilling people. Hey, hey, um, Elliot, it was really awesome talking to you today. And, you know, like, I think one of the things we try to do on the show is try to interview, you know, we're not opposed to like, you know, interviewing executive VPs or CEOs, but like, to have a real focus on like people on the front lines of like music and data, and you're definitely like one of those, those, those rising stars. So we appreciate your time, man. Is there a way for people to get in contact with you if any of the listeners want to kind of get kind of get in touch? Yeah, um, probably Instagram is probably the easiest. at Elliot Altoff on Instagram. That's about it. Um, I'm always posting about like stuff I'm working on at Republic and and stuff with Brother Moses too. So um, yeah, shout out to Brother Moses. Follow those dudes at Brother Moses. Um, but yeah. How Music Charts is written and produced by Jason Hoven and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. Special, special, special thanks to Elliot Altoff of Republic Records for chatting with us on this episode. Free Chartmetric accounts are available at chartmetric.com and article links and show notes are at podcast.chartmetric.com. And if you want some more insights, head to our blog, blog blog.chartmetric.com. That's it for season two, episode nine of How Music Charts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.